He dribbles left. He dribbles right. Behind the back. He gets around three defenders. Goes up for the three. It's in! It's in! And they lose by 40. That's 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 all that came into my mind. I really thought you were going to say, boom goes the dynamite. I really... <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Another day, another dollar. Yeah, Doogles, I'm on the road this week, so I'm really frustrated by your home court advantage here. I expect you to dominate this podcast. I expected Duke to dominate Virginia when I traveled out to Cameron last year, too. So... (laughs) We'll see. Oh, big recruiting news in the college basketball world that I don't want to talk about. Um, so we should move on. <laughs> we should move on oh, quickly. All right. All right. All right. We, we shall. We shall. As always, we're going to hit listener mail at the end, but we love it. So please send it in. SkippyDougals at gmail.com is how you send in listener mail, or you can tweet at SkippyDougals. Love that. Rate and review the podcast helps people to find us. Thank you. We have we have like five topics of listener mail yeah. to cover. So we're going to get to that at the end. We'll have to save the appropriate amount of time. Uh, to do that. Super excited. I want to start with the quiz, right? Let's hop right in. Our friends at Visual Capitalist gave a pretty awesome graphic with some data around annual beer consumption across the US. And I think, I just thought of Dougal's. I thought, if anyone knows what the beer consumption in the US is going to look like, it's Dougal's. You ready for this? Yes, go for it. (laughs) Okay, so not only do they have the total amount of beer consumed on average in gallons, which was a little shocking to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> they have the total number of breweries and the most consumed beer by state. So I'll just give you an example here. North Dakota beer consumption, uh, 37.5 gallons, and there's 31 breweries. The most consumed beer is Fargo, which I've never heard of before. Have you heard of Fargo? Just the place, but not the yeah. beer. No. Apparently they got a microbrewery over there that's taken off. So and do you know do you, when it when it says beer, are these breweries or are they? Is it like, is it Anheuser Busch or Bud Light? Yeah, it's uh, more Bud Light, Budweiser, okay. Miller Light, okay. that sort okay. of stuff. Cool, cool, cool. All right, so let's start on the low side, um, and I will tell you that the District of Columbia is included here as a state, but everything else looks like just a normal state. What are what do you think are the lowest beer consumption states? Mm. So let's see. I'm going to name a few, assuming these will be like in the bottom five. Okay. I'm going to go Utah, Rhode Island. Ooh, University of, never mind. So Utah, every state I think of, I can think of people guzzling. Um, <laughs> uh, Oklahoma, uh, South Dakota. Oh, okay. All right, I'm doing uh, one bad, more. right? Doing bad. So Utah's number five, 20 gallons. Per like capita. number five, like near uh, the top? five least, least. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Uh, District of Columbia consumes the least beer. Oh yeah, uh, at eighteen point two, uh, followed by Maryland, Connecticut, New Jersey, and you actually had it, Rhode Island. Rhode Island's right there. Oh, I'm so man. impressed that Utah was the first thing out of your mouth because that's a good guess. DC, I guess it's just like beer and, small. Yeah, I don't know what's going on in DC. They're probably sipping but, old fashions. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I so, think that's got to be. That's it. the thing. Now, this is shocking to me. The number one state 
you got any guesses? I don't think you're going to get it. So what, here's what initially come to mind for me would be Texas. Texas or... is like number nine, nine most. Nine most. Uh, okay. No, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't. What is it? All right. I'm going to, I'm going to do a top like six, top okay. seven here. Okay. You're going to catch a theme. I think New Hampshire, 41.5 preferred beer, Budweiser, Montana, 41.1 preferred beer, Budweiser. Then you got North Dakota, South Dakota, Vermont, Wisconsin, Maine. At this point, can we just make a conclusion that if you're up north, you consume more beer? Got to stay warm. You're inside more, I guess. Those winter mo- months must be tough, man. That's all I know. Wow. Didn't we do, you had a similar-ish quiz, right? That was around um, like college campuses, I think, or something. It was yeah, something, or stadiums maybe, or something like that. So I wonder if those line up. If you go back and look at that, if... uh how much is driven by the schools or it could be vice versa. I don't know, but interesting. The correlation. Yeah, I'm not sure, but, but that would be interesting. Um, I just put a bow on this. We're going to look at number of breweries by, by state. And you'd think some of those highest consuming states might have the greatest amount of breweries. None of those states I just made named have the most amount of breweries. Any guesses on this list? Colorado. Colorado's number six. California. Yeah. Population thing there. California yep. has almost 1500 breweries. New York. New York's right there as number two, followed by Pennsylvania, which surprised me a little. Uh, Washington and Michigan. Mm, there it is. Okay. All right. There you go. There's your worthless knowledge for the day. Thank you, man. Just educating, educating. And I'm going to reach into the fishbowl here. Thank you for that. Reach into the fishbowl to follow the thread of being drunk on something. And this is about people <laughs> Wait, being Kathy drunk. Wood. Who are we talking about? Here? I mean, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Oh man. We're, we're, she'll come up a little bit later. Being drunk on capital has gotten us into trouble. Am I wrong? Sure. If you want to be wrong, you're wrong. All right. No, I didn't know. I remember I read that book <laughs> and saw it. So, so no relevance. All right. So there was a Sequoia deck. That came out, actually came out a couple months ago, um, and it is called Adapting to Endure. So Sequoia has become famous as like, a, it's a huge venture capital firm. They have, they invest in, they're like the highest echelon up there with the benchmarks of the world of if you get their dollars, it kind of gives a halo effect from a startup yeah. perspective. And they're also famous because in times of crises, they've been known to come out with literature for their startups, uh, talking about what the situation's like and giving them direction on where they should go. So I think, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but in the 2008 times, they came out with something that was like the end of good times or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, this one's called Adapting to Endure. And there's a few different sections in it. I wanna highlight the section that's about public markets and the state of the public markets and give a few stats that they highlighted. These will be in theme with stuff that we've talked about before. Um, So thematically the same, I thought that the stats were interesting in and of themselves and likely the numbers, because this is two months ago, the numbers are a bit different now, but still directionally likely the same. Yeah. This is a deck that they came out with a while back. I I got into this when it first came out. And one of the most interesting charts is a visualization of basically telling a lot of their venture backed firms to lay off people immediately rather than wait. They have a really good graph that I can put on the Twitter 
that kind of hammers home how meaningful that point can be if you manage to cut costs as soon as possible in order to increase your likelihood of survival and then ultimately get to the other side. So that visualization you're talking about kind of upsets me. It's right. Uh-huh. I'm not I'm not saying that it's not it's not right directionally, but it kind of upsets me because you know, we talk about how you can't time the market. Right? Yeah. True. You can't time the market. But what what graphs like this make me think is like you still have some responsibility to hedge risk. And if you need this sharp of a cost cut, you didn't hedge appropriately. Now, I'm not talking about there's some costs, right? Like I'm not talking about like software costs or maybe let's look at like how we can negotiate our office lease, like stuff like that. I think, you know, you who knows. But the uh, this graph is like such a dramatic (laughs) drop that there is a lot of people in there. And that's that's where it kind of starts to upset me that I'm like, who didn't know that some version of this, whatever this is, we don't know exactly what it is yet, but was coming. And if this isn't even it, it's still coming. And so if you need to chop like 60 percent of your staff, like that's not that's not hedging appropriate. Now, well, yeah, no, that's a very fair point, because it effectively there's assumptions built into that graph that I don't know are that are clearly articulated. That has to be a startup, um, maybe a Peloton who's in the news again this week because they're going to stop manufacturing their products after they signed up to do what was it like a four hundred million dollar facility to manufacture yeah, and bought products. a company to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> but but um, there's assumptions built into that graph that's like this company, uh, the one that needs to take drastic action, has been living the high life, has been thinking about up and to the right increase in sales at all costs. And so I, I like your caveat there because it's clearly not that simple. It's just, I haven't seen a, a visual like that. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a visual like that that just says, rip the bandaid off now and make it as painful as possible as soon as possible. So that's what catches yeah, my eye yeah, about exactly. it. Exactly. And that's where I'm not, I'm not mad at Sequoia for putting this in because I do think that that mentality is is really important for survival for companies that, most likely have gotten drunk off Wisconsin beer. Yeah. But it's for where I get mad at is the companies themselves sometimes. And it depends on the company. This is really nuanced, but um, you know, it's not always up and to the right. Like, you know, that's the case. So anyway, wait, hold other- on. You just gave me a great idea. You know how we've do- we've both never had Fargo, the most popular beer in North Dakota. I think Truth. someone needs to send us some of that and we could review it on the show. Don't you think? I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't be mad at you. <laughs> All right, let's go. Sorry. Like my interrupt. friend Tupac. Tupac says, speaking <laughs> of Tupacs. Stop. Um, <laughs> Stop with the Tupac. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, so going to get mad at you, Google. So there, I'm gonna oh, get there mad. it is. Yeah, I'm mad right. at you. So there is a graph in here or stat that says 61% of all software, internet, and fintech companies are trading below pre pandemic 2020 prices. We've talked about a couple of those, like Zoom was an example before. And to give it, so it mentions it's software, internet, and fintech. What falls into those categories? Who knows? But their, uh, their segmentation of them, they said, so it's 53% of software companies are below their pre-pandemic 2020 prices, 67% of internet companies, and 73% of fintech companies. And collectively between all of them, the average that they have is 61%. Uh, maybe I'm just in a mood today. This is going to get me fired up. That's what are they implying here that the pre pandemic price like I get the the mental gymnastics to just be like, oh, well, that's 
before COVID. So that will be our baseline. But are they saying that that was fair value of those companies? Because it probably wasn't. I think it's more of a like a just a mental exercise. I think for them, I'm not sure that there is even a strong point. But because but cause where okay. they where they come the next the next stat I think is where there is a bit more of a point. The next one is a third are trading below COVID lows. That is interesting. Not it's not necessarily interesting or meaningful from a, a valuation perspective, but it's meaningful or interesting from a uh, like uncertainty perspective. Because what what you're saying is there was this time period. I mean, trans. I don't actually do this because it was a scary time. But if you send yourself back to March 2020, we were at a point where it's like can't leave my house. There was a FedEx driver that dare you say walked up to me and handed me a package and I thought he had assassinated me. <laughs> right? Like this was a time period where we were like we don't know what's happening in the world, right? The world yeah. could end and you're saying a third of those same companies are trading below when we thought the world was going to end. So like there, there's a, there's a there's something I think in that if you put those two things together. <sighs> I still yeah, this is it's much more relevant to your investing style than it is to mine. Because I, when I see a graph like this, I just go, yeah, but what's the valuation? What are the cash flows? What's the revenue growth over a decade? You know, and I see you shaking your head over the, that. That's fair. Let me lighten it up a notch. Have you seen how all these charts say Sequoia Confidential on them? And isn't that hilarious since this is ad, it's been on an ad on the internet webs for two months and everyone on earth has seen this by now? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just for Sequoia and some of their friends and 7 yeah, billion yeah. of their friends. <laughs> and then... <laughs> No, I, I get you. This is it, uh, shocking, I'd say. I mean, a third being below their COVID lows is interesting. But hey, listen, I'm on vacation this week. I was on the bus with somebody making jokes about how I should have purchased Zoom stock. And I was like, it, it's same thing. This happened at, at the restaurant. You'll remember Dougal's where he didn't realize he was talking to Skippy. And then I started giving him the breakdowns of Zoom's current price and where it was. And he just kind of stopped talking. But uh some of these things did get a bump from COVID, right? So their COVID low might be artificially enhanced is what I'm trying to apply here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is why I think these are more meaningful from a psychology perspective than they are from a, from a valuation perspective. I was also talking to somebody uh, this week who had said that, um, so they're, they were saying that their like investment knowledge isn't vast, right? And so they rely a lot on their financial advisor. And when... I guess it was early 2020, they said when their financial advisor had put together the portfolio that they thought they should invest in, um, they wanted to have some agency. They're like, even though I didn't really know what I was talking about, I wanted to have some agency. So I decided, yeah. I, was, I was like, I'm going to pick a stock and say, no, not that one, because whatever. So they pick Zoom. And he's like, don't, I don't want to invest in Zoom right now. So he's telling me this. And he goes, now, look at that, like kicking myself because Zoom's been, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I went, well, good news is, you can actually get Zoom for the same price that you'd have gotten Zoom for yeah. back then. I'm not, I'm not recommending that you do that, but like if you're kicking yourself that you couldn't, right? Um, and they were surprised by it. So we brought that, that the, point up before. The better news is, I mean, I haven't done that exact analysis. I bet kicking Zoom out of that portfolio at this point in time has actually made them money because I think Zoom's now down. I mean, remember it was like three, four months ago when it back went back to pre-COVID yeah. prices. It's still and like February. I, I think it's like February 2020 right now. Okay. Prices. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go through the the last three 
that I want to talk about relatively quickly, I think here. So one is growth at all costs is no longer rewarded. I think we know that, hit on that point a lot. Uh, the next is the focus is shifting to companies with profitability. Also know that point. The, uh, what I didn't know though here, why, why this caught my fancy, right? My fancy was running around and this one caught it is because I didn't know that there was this MSXXUPT index that it's a Morgan Stanley unprofitable tech index that existed. Like who, who like intentionally goes after that index? I don't know, but they compared the NASDAQ overall to that index as the data point here. And at this point in time, NASDAQ was down, the NASDAQ 100 was down 28%. And this Morgan Stanley unprofitable tech index was down 64%. So that was their, them showing like profitability is important here. Again, I just didn't know that this index existed. I, I'm shocked by that because I thought this was a, the Dougal's investment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was your ticker right here. I thought it was all about high flyers. Don't make any money. Uh, <laughs> I've been I've been screaming about this for months, so I won't even comment on it. Of course, profitability and cash flows matter. Of course. I can't wait for the tide to go out. I don't want to see the people naked, but. <laughs> uh, and cheap capital is not not coming to the rescue was the last one, which we've talked about before, too. But all those put together is an important storyline that then gets to the that graph that you were talking about before, because they're basically saying fears at an all time high or not an all time high fears at fears at a recent high, right? People are scared. You can see that by the fact that prices are below where they were when they were, when FedEx yeah. drivers were driving around assassinating people. <laughs> Dougal's. Um, yeah, Dougal specifically. Uh, they're saying that it's not all about growth. You need to be profitable and you can't just rely on external capital as much because it's expensive, right? And all that leads to you best be taken precaution. Can we do a thought experiment as part of my fishbowl? I, we're gonna, I'm going to tie together two things here. I was debating rates this week and hey, is, you know, what's the Fed going to do next? Is it going to be 0.75 up? Is it going to be one full percent? I think it's going to be 0.75, but I don't care. Predictions are stupid. We know it's going up, right? Uh, the CPI continues to be higher than is okay. Here's my thought experiment for you. Why can't, I, I'm not even saying they would do this, but let's just talk about if they did. What if they just showed up and said, uh, 3%. It's up 3% tomorrow. Can you imagine the freak out that would happen? Well, and, and you know how this works, that if stocks go up the next day, uh, the Wall Street Journal writes, oh, Fed shows confidence in the current strength of the economy, so stocks are up. And if stocks go down, uh, the Wall Street Journal writes, oh, you know, extreme rate hike has investors spooked, blah, blah, blah. I think the reason I want to talk about that with you is I think we know we're headed that direction. We have to go up significantly to get inflation under, under control. And I guess what the Fed hasn't done historically, but it, what's interesting to me is why not do that all at one time? I believe that there's probably lots of rationale, but the one that I would gravitate toward is because it's a, what, what you're saying, not that you're saying to do it, but what, what your, your thought experiment there, Yeah, that mathematically might be the right answer. But we're dealing with human beings and psychologically that that likely might not be the right answer because in the end you have to play a psych like it's a psychology game no one knows exactly how to play it but i think that's it that like you know it's the the frog in water yeah you know situation no, but the the psychology of 
the Fed called this transitory for 18 months when everyone know, knew it was, wasn't. And now they're dilly-dallying and twiddling their thumbs and they're way late to the game. The positive psychology that happens if they just raise it three, <laughs> 3%, I know it's insane, but people go, all right, they're not messing around. Like this is serious. And I mean, can you imagine what that do to the mortgage market tomorrow? Like people would stop spending money almost instantaneously because of how much more valuable it would be to hold money and how much more expensive certain things that require financing would be. I, I think it's just an interesting thought experiment that I've been kind of yeah. playing around with. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I do think that that is interesting. And again, there's the math versus the psychology of it that yeah. I think is important. But to me, it's just like, everyone sees where we're headed. You go back to the Stanley drunken Miller um, interview we talked about a while back and like rates have to go up significantly to get inflation under control. Historically, that's always been the case. We're going to have to be north of 5% for the Fed fund rate, according to his team of analysts. So like, yeah. I'm yeah. just wondering why not get there sooner rather than later. It, it, it's a surefire recession. Like, I mean, we might already be in a recession, but you just like guarantee a recession and you set the timing of a recession. I'm sure someone like Biden hates the idea. But yeah, hopefully yeah. those things are disconnected. The other place where the math may not work out is I one, I agree with your thought experiment. Like I, I do think it's a really valuable conversation to have and to go through as a thought experiment, which I'm sure folks at the Fed probably are going through themselves. The other thing that might not work out mathematically though is time. Because from a and I'm thinking about this largely from a company perspective. Now you could also go both ways here, but I'm talking about time. What I'm saying is, yeah, we know we're all going to get there, but can you give me like six months to try and shore up funds or whatever it might be? But the other side of that is like, you done messed up, right? Like, why are you zombie company sticking around with all this debt? You shouldn't have gotten the debt in the first place. No, it's going to be 3% up and low Sienna, yeah. you know? No, I, I mean, I know the CEOs I talk to, I can picture a few of them definitely being like, what are you doing to me? Like my borrowing costs went up 3% overnight. That's completely unfair. And I can, I can imagine the anger directed towards the Fed. But your point is like, guys, you had the lowest cost of borrowing for what, at least five years, if not really cheap rates for almost a decade. If you don't, if you don't have your debt situation in order by now, shame on you, not shame on the Fed. And again, the writing is on the wall here. Like, if you're a company that needs debt to survive and you didn't take that out last month, knowing that the next time the Fed re, uh, meets, rates are going up again, it's just it's just how the question right now is how much rates are going up. It's not if rates are going up. So I have limited sympathy for that, especially if you manage to do this in a way that brings inflation to a manageable place and effectively saves the long-term health of the U.S. economy. I think it's a good thought experiment, man. I think it, and you're, you're, although I'm, I keep wanting to say your point, but I'm not sure you're making a, you, yeah, you meant yeah. this is a thought experiment, but I do think that that regardless of the position, that perspective is valuable to, to have, at least to take into consideration. Cause I, I do think that there's a, when there's inevitability, a lot of times that ripping off the bandaid, the proverbial bandaid is the way to go. Just say like, we, we know we're getting there and instead of dilly dallying, right. And causing angst for long periods of time, can we just 
feel the pain now because humans are actually fairly resilient in the end. They hate to have to experience the change, but once they're in the change, they're actually pretty like you get through it. Yeah. They're adaptable. Yeah. So let me, um, before I kick it back to you, I got one mini rant. Do you know what acorns is? Yes. Okay. So for those who don't know, acorns is like an app you can put on your phone and the, the basic concept um, at least years ago, maybe their business model is evolving, but it's like keep that change and start investing it. So if I spend a dollar sixty-seven on something, then I'd have thirty-three cents that Acorns would pull out of my account to round up to two dollars, and they'd start investing that thirty-three cents. Kind of cool concept. Lots of people have copied it. Acorns, I have no major beef with them. Here's my beef: CNBC has started doing finance advice in partnership with acorns. So it'll be like, Hey, whether a recession is near or far, here's five things to five ways to cope with uncertainty sponsored by acorns. And then you go through, you click through acorns. If you actually do a breakdown on the fees you pay per the amount of investments that they typically um, add for your typical retail investor, the fees end up, I won't give the exact value, but it's like north of 10%. It's like in the 12% range. So you're doing, say you're investing a hundred bucks here, a hundred bucks there. You could do that with any other service, basically for really low fees. To me, I don't know why this throws me the wrong way, but it's just like CNBC is just grabbing a quick buck here and effectively subliminally telling retail investors, oh, partner with this. This is a great service to invest. Go pay a 12% fee on your invested capital. It just riles me up. Am I, does it matter? Do you care, Dougals? There's one perspective that I'd have that I'd say like, is that a usurious fee compared to what you can get elsewhere? Yes. Yeah. Right. The other perspective is what I don't know is how many of the folks that are using Acorn, it's a binary here where they wouldn't have invested at all if it weren't for acorns and now they are. And right. It's, it's kind of like, That's if fair. you look in, in, if you look in the venture capital world, you could say, is this investor really taking 20% of my company? They go, yeah, without that $5 million, you wouldn't have a company. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And I, th- that's what I don't know. Now, the other part of that is, I don't, I can't remember how old acorns is. Right. But let's, when acorns started, that binary actually may have been a lot stronger than it is now. The, the getting started pack is different than the, I'm in my fourth year of using acorns. And now you're like, okay, now you're investing. Yeah. So they're at least five years old. I haven't paid attention in a long time. It's possible they've revised the way they did things. But if I remember correctly, historically, the reason their fee, their like normalized fee ended up so great is because they were charging a monthly service charge almost to enable the service. And so that was like five bucks a month, but people based on typical spending habits were only investing, like I'm making these numbers up, but they were only investing like 30 bucks a month or something, a <laughs> hundred bucks a month. So it was significant in the portion for the portion of investments that were actually happening. Even if you looked over the, but maybe that's, I, I actually appreciate that perspective. It is true that maybe there's more good than bad being caused there. It just gives me pause. And I'm not sure that that's the case. And for someone like, this is true for all services, but for someone that doesn't know anything about investing, that just jumps on, thinks Acorn has this cool idea, 
they don't even know their pain what might be a 12% fee. And they might not even know that that's available for free in many places. Yeah, I think that's right. And probably to, to make it fully, maybe not fully ethical, but to make it more ethical, you'd likely have to only use Acorns. Like intentionally, Acorns would have this structure as a starter. And then when you got to a certain point, like their plan was that they move you into something that is more of like a Vanguard or something. Like they, they would have to yeah. do something like that. But anyway, I... I get your uh, your frustration with it, and it's going to cause me to reach into the fishbowl. <laughs> I know it would. To highlight this piece on no opinion. Uh, so this is a substack, and it's like Noah, Noah's Ark, Noah. Noah Pinion is, is the name of it. So a person's name, Pinion. Um, yeah, it's by Noah Smith. He's, he's yeah. good. Yeah. And the name of this piece is On BS and Investing. BS is spelled out in the name of the piece, but we got the children's. So this piece hits on a number of themes that we've been talking about recently, and we've highlighted other pieces around it, around just like, be careful of what you watch and listen to and how you act, because people have their own motivations for what they, they say to you. That's like the theme. I'm going to give a section, I'm going to talk about a section of this that I thought was, um, was valuable to break down in this way, which is around common red flags for folks to watch out for if they are looking for financial advice, et cetera, or an advisor. So here are the common red flags that were mentioned. There are five of them. One is projected returns far above historical equity returns. Two is claims of returns significantly exceeding bond yields with little or no risk. Three, extrapolation of recent extreme investment performance into the future. Four, overly complex investments with non-transparent sources of return, five perverse incentives for the people selling the investment. And what I, in my view, love to get, I want to get your view too. In my view, looking at these common red flags, I think that they're, they're solid red flags, but I also wouldn't say if you take one of these, it's not like if you see this thing, then run the other direction. It's dig deeper. Like it's a flag, dig deeper, right? Like there are, are uh, investment funds that have returns that are above historical equity returns like that that exists but it makes you it makes you want to say especially when tied in with number two and number three especially when it's tied into like with little risk or fluctuation or when it's tied into look at the last two years now imagine that for 50 years right like what it's it's when you start to tie some of these things together that really becomes a red flag in my view but you should take any of them and dig deeper i think that's fair but i'd be i really like react a little stronger i'd be pretty concerned if when people ask me to manage their money they typically don't know what i do and then when i explain it to them they typically run the other way even though <laughs> my projected returns are going to be above average historical returns i mean yeah i need to break it down after this most recent downturn but for the last 12 years i'm doing 17 percent a year right and i do think that continues to be sustainable but you know what else happened to me this week? I talked to someone about owning coal stock and they turned into a skeleton. They looked like they died on the spot. They were so terrified of this investment. And that happens everywhere. I mean, that happens with Baba. That happens with all these other things. So to me, there's always a catch. If you get above average historical returns, there's some sort of catch that makes that hard to stomach, especially if it's being marketed. Because the Jim Simmons 
of the world that ha- truly have like near guaranteed exceptional returns in the 50% range, those funds aren't public. <laughs> that fund is for him and his employees only because there's only so much, there's only so much arbitrage to have there. Right. So I don't know. I, I was trying to apply these things to crypto basically. And the claims of returns that are significantly exceeding bond re- yields with little to no risk that happened all over the place in yep. crypto. And most of those places uh, have come back to earth. Yeah. Well, so can we step back to the other one? I, I, yeah, I yeah, get that. Yeah. And that's why I do think you should dig deeper, but my point was not that people wouldn't turn into skeletons when you talk to them about your trash nonsense. Yeah. It was that they should just investigate your trash nonsense more, but not view it as necessarily a red flag. Right. Because if you're if you are looking for this is fully caveated by like your time, all the stuff we've mentioned before, your time horizon, your level of risk, all that stuff. But if you are gonna run the other way automatically when someone has projected returns that are far above historical equity returns, then why don't you just buy the market, like just buy the equity yeah. returns. Like th- that, that's kind of, that, that's what I'm saying. Very fair. No, I, I just think, um, I just think that's really, it's above average historical equity returns for an extended period of time are really rare. I mean, very true. The, the chances you found the next Buffett are also basically zero. Like there's, people can do it. And they're, they're people we talk about on the show frequently, but it's just really, really rare. Maybe I'm just in a extra like conservative and, and uh, cautious point of view because I've seen the pullback and I know valuations are still high, but all these things scare me, especially the overly complex stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, oh, I, yeah. I just, yeah, I do think that these are material flags. Like that's why I highlighted them. Cause I, I think look at this list and dig in a heck of a lot deeper. If you even get a whiff of, of one of these things being true. Uh, I'm just saying that it's you can't take any list and say if that thing is true, then it is definitively bad. Agreed. But Agreed. you should you should like do hardcore due diligence. Um, and in the piece, I said that Kathy Wood might come up a little bit later. In this piece, Kathy Wood is one of the examples uh, that was highlighted. And the I think that she was highlighted mostly around the extrapolation piece a bit. It was going off of like the double digit GDP like increases and her promise of 40 to 50% like returns on portfolio and, you know, all that stuff. And it also then ties into perverse incentives for people selling the investment, because when you have a, someone that runs a fund like Kathy Wood and I'm look, I don't know Kathy Wood. So this isn't about her, but it's about a fund manager, right. That is acting in that perspective. They make money based on the amount of assets they have. The amount of assets they have are reflective of, how quote unquote effective their marketing is. So it has nothing to do necessarily with returns, at least in the long run, right? It's if you can market well and you can get people to have significant inflows, which Kathy Wood is still getting inflows, right? Then Kathy Wood's gonna make money and that money that she's making is effectively risk-free. Like, so she's making risk-free money and you are not. I mean, what I mean is no matter what her performance is, as long as she gets your money, she's getting paid. And if Kathy Wood were 28, then I wouldn't say it's risk-free because it's career risk. Kathy Wood's in her 60s. So at this point, it's like, she could just make that money and be like, well, I don't actually need my financial career anymore, right? So it's a, again, don't know Kathy Wood specifically, but someone in that situation, 
you should look at the extrapolation and then understand the incentives because they are incented for you to give them your money because they make that money off of that way. And then just look, look at the extrapolation and does it make sense? All fair points. It's unfortunate we, we talk about this so much because there are scams out there and there are people with perverse incentives uh, to try and get your investments in their pocket. Makes me sad. What's next in your fishbowl? Let me do one thing real quick. So uh, I think you've seen this, Dougals, but walk through it with me. The countries with the highest default risk in 2022. Numero uno, our boy who's using the volcanoes to uh, mine Bitcoin over there. El Salvador has a government bond yield of almost 32%. For the record, that's uh, high. (laughs) Government debt is uh, 82% of GDP. It's like... It's concerning. Um, what what was surprising to me is I thought Turkey was going to be higher on the list uh, than it was. It was toward the bottom of the list. And granted, this is the list of the risky <laughs> uh, countries. So it's closer to the yeah. bottom of the list of the risky. It's not closer to the bottom of the list of like the 100 and whatever, 80 countries in the world. Um, but that one was surprising. Ukraine. I mean, number eight, I would think their default risk is higher. Now, they're... Um... Government debt is only at 49% of GDP, but their GDP has been decimated, right? Yeah. Their GDP and for can, decades is 10%. I mean, I have no idea. I'm just 30% yeah. of what it used to be. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, current government yield is 60% on their bonds. This is all, it's all Bloomberg data. I'm not sure their exact classification, but they look at government bond yields, interest expense, government debt, and uh, credit default swap spreads. Also, Dougals, it looks like Africa and Central America here are well represented, uh, maybe even in some South America countries. So I don't know what that means, but it's interesting to see. This isn't stuff that people write about every day. I don't think these are the for- no. forgotten yeah. countries in a lot of ways. High level, I think it says that the, the world is not in good shape. The world is so bifurcated. It's hard to make that conclusion, right? Yes. But the reason I state that, so maybe this by itself doesn't state it, but the reason I state that is because we talk about the other half of that bifurcation not being in good shape. The quote unquote superpowers of the world today, the US, not in good shape. We're, we're not up and to the right right now. Maybe let me, let me say that right now. Like we're not up and to the right right now as the US. Second superpower is probably China, question mark. Like we'll have to see yeah. what's happening there. Russia. Not in good shape. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. And so, and then you kind of have this like, there's a huge drop off. You can maybe throw India, might be missing a couple in there, but there's a huge drop off. And then you get to Europe and the countries of Europe kind of sitting in there, but they're, they're squarely in a ter- tier two territory. And there's a question mark. And then you have these countries not in good shape. I mean, I will not have you calling my friends in Europe tier two. I didn't say that the human beings it's just not allowed. No, I, the economy too. I will stand up and fight for my fellow Europeans. Uh, <laughs> interesting stuff. We could put that out on the, the Twitter as well. So Dougals, do you have one more thing in the fishbowl? Should we jump to listener mail? Let, let's jump to listener mail. As always, got to cue up that music. They fight. And because we haven't mentioned this in a while, can you give credit where credit is due? 
for where the music came from? Oh, Dan Byrne. Uh, Dan Byrne, actually, he's become such a big deal that he opened for The Who a few months back and he did our podcast music. So we're, we are, we know celebrities, I guess is how to put it. And I mean, as you probably know, because it's an old, old saying, but the, the Who is pretty much the Skippy and Dougals of the music industry. So, <laughs> all right. So into the listener mail, we got a few pieces here. I'm going to start off because we met, you mentioned it earlier with uh, John. Thank you, John sent in a little note about Peloton and Peloton. We've discussed here previously about their, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go to the extreme here, their reckless use of capital and investing in manufacturing in multiple ways. They didn't even make one mistake. They made multiple mistakes in building up their own like capacity to manufacture, buying a company to get even more capacity for manufacturing because you would think uh, expensive bikes are going to go on forever. Yeah. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. So, but now uh, Peloton has decided to outsource their manufacturing. So they're stopping all manufacturing themselves. It causes a number of layoffs, people losing their jobs. It like really is sucky. It's probably, it's probably the, the only necessary cash move like that they like big one they have today because they have to just stay alive. They are in pure survival mode, but really sucks for employees. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. That hits home for me too because uh, one of my former employees, their dream job was Peloton, and so we worked really hard to get them that gig. Uh, they still they still have that gig, which is great. But it's like, you know, that was literally the place they wanted to work, and they don't feel the same way about management that they did three years ago, right? Because management has really struggled here. It exercise equipment appears to be a really tough space to make consistent profits, even if you have a great product because people erode your profit margin. Do you know what uh, TRX straps are, Douglas? Do I know how much they cost or do I literally know what, what it is? Have you like seen them? Are oh, yeah. you aware? Yeah, I've seen them. Okay. Yep. So for those who don't know, it's a, a strap that some guy in the military invented that allows you to do like push-ups and sit-ups and all these other things suspended in air to use your body weight it's kind of cool concept well Dougal's, it's like some canvas and some buckles they sell for 150 bucks each that company went bankrupt two months ago like how is that even possible that yeah <laughs> it seems like <laughs> it seems like they should yeah. have decent profit margins but they don't they're they're bankrupt now uh peloton might be headed that direction too mm. uh this is stumble after stumble, man. Because I think Peloton, in my view, I don't have all their information, but I, my opinion is that they didn't realize they were actually in the software business. My opinion. Well, so, but uh, we, we I mean, can, it's a whole nother conversation. I, but I now, no, I, I just want to spend another minute on that. Now, I think it might be short-sighted. They're effectively just going to focus on software and subscriptions. Well, the, the profit margins there look juicy, but... I'm not sure the best way to run a business is not to always be like, oh, well, let's only do the thing that's profitable for us. You create, they created this whole experience that if they get away from, I'm not sure that people will actually do the subscriptions anymore. I'm just throwing it out there, man. Yeah. Okay. I'm just throwing it out there. My favorite part about this article was the last, it was like the last sentence in it that said so off of this news peloton's up one percent right cool 
Like, and that's, that's like, that's great. 1% in a day is a, that's, that's really solid. Comma. And is down 95% for the year. And like, to me, it reminded me of, you know, if it's like they pass in the ball, he dribbles left, he dribbles right behind the back. He gets around three defenders, goes up for the three. It's in, it's in. And they lose by 40. That's, that's, that's all that came into my mind. I really thought you were going to say, boom, goes the dynamite. I really, <laughs> I really thought you were going to say. All right. All right. Uh, um, John, thanks for the listener mail. That's good stuff. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Uh, the second piece is from Norway. We got listener mail in from Norway. Sfer, uh, yes. thank you um, for that, for that international audience. And uh, basically this double down on uh, one of the book recommendations that we had, which is around fact factfulness, which we mentioned last time. Um, and so thank you for, for double doubling down, giving the stamp of approval for that and appreciate that international audience. So thank you very much. Oh, we love it. And we've both read Factfulness and would recommend it. Um, so if you're looking for something to pick up with kind of a positive spin on uh, some of the progress of the world, I think that's a great read. Uh, number three from Drew. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but basically this listener mail was, you really cannot not talk about Celsius any longer. It's too juicy. Drew, you're right. <laughs> you're right. I, I saw this come in and, and I read more about it. My problem is it's not super interesting to me. Does that make any sense, Dougals? It's like, <laughs> it's like a bunch of people over here playing with a snake pit and someone got bit. And, and then I'm supposed to do a breakdown. I'm like, well, maybe we shouldn't have jumped into the skate. No, I, I'm joking a little there. I keep going back and reading this and I can't claim to be an expert with Celsius and everything that was going on there. But the thing that always gets me hung up is this uh, collateralizing, basically, crypto on top of crypto. So if we just talk a basic loan and, and like, I own a, I have my own business, right? And my business needs funds, but maybe my business doesn't have a strong history of profitability, or maybe I don't have a bunch of assets. The bank might come to me and say, we want to collateralize your business loan with the equity that you have in your home. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. The equity that I have in my home is fairly stable, fairly constant. It's easy to get a fair market value for. So that's how the old school banking system works, right? You collateralize something with like a true asset. Also in the business world, sometimes you'll do that with like, heavy equipment that's really valuable. There's lots of ways to collateralize loans. This Celsius idea of collateralizing basically a loan with some crypto that's highly volatile and uh, effectively numbers in computers, it just doesn't seem to work that way. And that's, if I can really oversimplify here, I mean, that's what happened. They said the value of uh, Terra USD is worth a hundred bucks. And then all of a sudden the value of Terra USD is worth $0. And that happened in like seven days. So it's not someone's house. Yeah. And, and for those that are fully unaware of who Celsius is, I don't know enough about the crypto space to get into the detail. So this might be an over, over, oversimplification, but hopefully it's helpful. They're in the crypto space. They took a bunch of people's money and they can't give those people their money back. Is like, is the, that's the snake pit you're describing 
here are some numbers I saw. Yeah. So they have 1.7 million customers. They have five and a half billion dollars in liabilities. $4.7 billion of that is money they owe to their customers. Yep. They had back in last October, $25 billion in assets. And even if you're going back to the banking world, that ratio of that ratio doesn't work, <laughs> right? With like, you, you don't have enough assets to be able to um, have, what is it? The reserve ratio or whatever it is in the banking world. Yeah. Um, not, yeah. not that it's, it's not apples to apples, but still. And like fully collateralized. Uh, yeah. yeah exactly. All the stress testing that's done. Um, and current assets, current assets is 4.3 billion. Yeah. So they're, they're short. If we cut to the chase, they're short at least 1.2 billion they don't have 1.2 billion that they should have to pay back their customers effectively. And it's, it's not, you can't, yes, but you can't even from an asset perspective. Yes. But of those assets, $167 million of its cash. So the other assets are funny money, loosey goosey, piggly wigglies. Uh, true, but they are. Yeah. The, so the, <laughs> they interviewed the CEO, right. And he's like, we're in bad trouble. Here's the facts. We're filing for bankruptcy. Here's why. The DeFi space that they, that Celsius claimed was new banking that was more secure than your legacy banking. And I go back to your article about all the red flags. This had all the red flags. You, you can make a risk-free return that's greater than your bank. And we're new banking and it, everything's um, coded. We collateralize against assets that are truly meaningless in the grand scheme of things. But so they interview the CEO, he lays out all that, kind of eats his humble pie. And he says, yeah, so we have this billion plus gap. At least this is how I read it, Dugos. Tell me if you interpret it differently. There's there's ways we're going to address that. One is we have this awesome Bitcoin mining operation. Last year, that made $60 million for us. Well, you're talking about a cap of $1 billion, dude. You gotta, how long are you going to wait for your so-called investors <laughs> to yeah. make this billion dollars back? Of the things, if I were a customer of theirs, of the things that would not make me feel better is, yeah, we only have $167 million in cash, but the rest of our assets are in Bitcoin rigs and <laughs> El Salvadorian volcanoes. That <laughs> They didn't say well, that. That last part no, was, was a dude. So actually... Ride. Actually, you're going to, um, the other possible solution is a new coin. Th that's even worse than the Bitcoin <laughs> mining thing. Uh, it's I, like, we'll just continue this Ponzi scheme. Yeah. And we'll just, if we <laughs> going back to your, your snake pit analogy, you got bit in the snake pit and they're like, but we do have scorpions over here. Yeah. Right. No, no, leave the zoo. <laughs> Leave the zoo immediately. I want to do one more thing on that that's related. And Drew, thank you so much. I hope we did that justice without being experts on it. What's happened in crypto recently, a lot of it ties back to the Terry USD collapse, which evaporated. Douglas is right. Is it $40 billion worth of wealth? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, and, and that reverberated through the space. And I, the thought experiment I've been doing there is... Like, what if the Japanese yen, which all, all the countries that trade with Japan have significant exposure to, just goes to zero overnight? Can you imagine the ramification, the ramifications of that? 
they'd be significant yeah. and the us would feel it and china would feel it and far corners of south africa would feel it i mean it's hard to like draw diagrams and run models that show the amount of reverberation that that would take and that's effectively what's happened in crypto like this is going to be an awesome study long term for economists to say what happens when the interconnectedness of one key asset completely collapses that's exactly what happened here and i i think it's just made places like celsius it, it's almost not given them a chance now we can argue about if that if celsius was a wise investment to start it probably yeah. wasn't yeah. but uh without that terra usd collapse i think the music would continue to play in a lot of the crypto space i i think that's really been the catalyst uh for a lot of these things and you just didn't see the cascade immediately it took several months to happen it's scary to me this stuff i might just be an old fuddy-duddy well no i think it should be because my point with the japanese yen analogy is like it, people thought they were buying a stable coin like like yeah. they didn't think this stable coin was different than any other stable coin and so if i'm trading foreign currencies and i don't know that one of them is just a complete house of cards it's really scary that it is that it is thank you drew thank you for sending that in last piece here is from katie who says um because we've talked about slashing valuations here recently this was sent in about uh, Stripe um, and Stripe specifically slashing its internal valuation by 28%. And so one thing to, to like clarify around this is when we discussed Klarna recently yeah. and talked about their valuation, this is different than that in that Klarna went out, raised money, uh, and the, their investors told them that their value had dropped by 60 something percent, which is more comparable to the, the public, like a public equity market. This is Stripe cutting the price, their internal price, which is what their uh, employees would pay to buy the stock options in the company. So they slash that by 28%. That's typically what's called your fair market value, um, which is generally lower than what, what investors pay. And so the implication of this is that new employees that Stripe hires will now have a, a lower price they have to pay to buy the stock, which should incentivize, have a greater incentive for people to believe that the stock's going to be higher in, in the future. Whereas if you end up with a higher price, you bring people in, they're going to be like, well, I feel like I'm starting underwater anyway. So that's the, it's like, it's an interesting game um, kind of to end up, end up playing there. That makes My sense. Favorite, yeah, it does. My favorite comment on this was on Twitter, just saying, oh, that's cute. Because if the public markets are down 60 plus percent and your internal valuation only gets down to 28 percent i mean Douglas, you, you talked about the employee psychology there my question is is it fair it seems like that it, it seems like there should have been a more drastic adjustment to valuation based on what we're seeing for competitors in public markets yeah but the the pushback i have on that is is going back to the difference between your external valuation your internal valuation because that the fair market value is typically lower anyway. Sure. Like the, the fair market value isn't supposed to have as much of the I don't know, extrapolated positive psychology. It's a, it's a third party that comes in and looks at like your books and does like, so, 
So I would expect that valuation to go down by less than what your public valuation, whether the 28% or the 60%, whether any of those numbers are right, I would expect it to be lower automatically. No, I mean, I think you have some assumptions baked in there that they already, whatever, had a a 50% premium or something. There would be a 50% premium if they went public, if it was, if they IPO, right? And I guess... What I'll say is I just don't know those assumptions. 28% didn't seem like enough to me. When the Klarna's of the world, I don't have the the stats in front of me, but when we last talked about Klarna, it was like, they think they're going to be down 60%. Well, they actually raised an evaluation that was significantly lower than that assumption. Um, Should I pull that up? Yeah. Yeah. You, you can pull that up. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, look, I don't have enough in, inside information to know if the number's right or not, but the way that these valuations, I'm going to vastly oversimplify here, but the way these, these uh, valuations happen is if you take your standard annual report, let's say of a, of a public company, right? You've got your financial statements, you have the, all the flowery language about how beautiful the future is, and you have a risk section, right? There's more than that, but those are like three big areas. The way this stuff happens is when you go out and you talk to, as a startup, if you go out and you talk to uh, venture capitalists, you only take the flowery language, basically. I need financial statements. You need financials too, right? You take the, the flowery language and then you go to the, the third party people with the foreign evaluations and you only take the risk section. Yeah. Like, and so it's a, it's kind of a difference. Like you come out here and you're just like, oh, this is beautiful. In 10 years, you Kathy Wood the crap out of that conversation, right? <laughs> and then you come over here and you're like, ugh, our business, ugh, we got so many risks going on. Like it's going to be terrible, right? And you, you get a, so that's a, it's not exactly how it works, but. All right, let me jump back in and tell you my psychology on this. This is one example, so it's probably not fair. And Klarna is not a direct competitor to Skype. Uh, to Stripe. So like it's different thing, right? But a year ago, they raised um, at a $45 billion valuation. When we talked about they were trying to raise their next uh, series, they thought they might be in the mid-teens. What they actually raised funding at, they raised $800 million at a valuation of $6.7 billion. So they went from $45 billion to 6.7 billion. That's just where my perspective is coming in when I see 28% and kind of chuckle at it. The other thing I'd also read into this is that Stripe most likely, because they've been pushing off IPOing for a little yeah. while, right? They may have also just pushed it out a few more years. Oh, I would think in, so. In which case, 28% might be fine. But you, you know what I mean? Like it's it's different... It's different than like if they say, and I'm making this up because we don't know, they say in three to five years, where the, where's the market going to be and where's our business going to be versus in three to five months, where's the market going to be and where's our business going to be? 28% might, might end up being fine. I don't know. I Mainly, I wanted to make sure that there was a difference in the understanding there between the internal valuation, the external valuation too. Yeah. How many of that I mean, no doubt about it. Even the high flyers, that's one of the borderline iconic companies, well-respected companies. Um, they're still feeling the pain just like everyone else. Yes, yes, yes. Katie, thanks for the listener mail. It's good yeah. stuff. Thank you, everybody. As we mentioned, always one-stop shop, 
skippydoogles.com. You can hit on that listener mail, skippydoogles at gmail.com. And we always appreciate our premium subscribers. Helps us keep this ads free. Skippydoogles.supercast.com is where you can check that out. Thanks, guys.